I am not a healer. I do not heal anyone. I think of myself as a stepping stone on a pathway of self-discovery. I create a space where people can learn how incredibly wonderful they are by teaching them to love themselves. After years of individual counseling with clients and conducting, conducting hundreds of workshops and intensive training programs across the country and around the world, I found that there is only one thing that heals every problem, and that is to know how to love yourself. When people start to love themselves more each day, it's amazing how their lives get better. They feel better, they get the jobs they want, they have the money they need, their relationships either improve or the negative ones dissolve and new ones begin. It's a very simple premise, loving yourself. Someone said to me recently, you gave me the most wonderful gift. You gave me the gift of myself. Life is a voyage of self-discovery and to me to be enlightened is to go within and to know who and what we really are and to know that we have the ability to change for the better by loving ourselves. Loving ourselves clears us so that we can love ourselves enough to love other people. To me, love is a deep appreciation. And when I talk about loving ourselves, I mean having a deep appreciation for who we are. We accept all the different parts of ourselves. We accept the whole package with love, unconditionally. In the Piscean age, we looked out there for our savior, but now we are moving into the Aquarian age and we are learning to go within to find our savior. We are the power we have been seeking. That was from an article titled, Do You Truly Know How to Love Yourself? by the late New Age self-help guru, Louise Hay. I'm always fascinated, to some degree, with the popular self-help, self-improvement, self-esteem and self-love programs and seminars and books and CDs and DVDs and promises of happiness and promises of success and all that stuff because the whole self-help, self-love movement seemed to grow right out of an interesting psychological movement of the mid-1900s through the work of psychologists such as uh, Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, and others called humanistic psychology. And what's interesting to me about humanistic psychology is its underlying philosophical assumptions or, or foundational beliefs, specifically regarding human nature, such as the sovereignty of man, meaning man is independent and free from God, self-ruling and accountable only to himself and not to God, and is the sole determiner of truth, meaning, purpose, and values, not God, and the innate goodness of man, meaning man is inherently good, not sinful, and will naturally incline himself toward what is good and not toward what is evil, and the actualizing power of man, meaning man has within himself the ability to realize his full potential and become all that he can be on his own without any kind of salvation or real transformation.
and to see and understand who we really are and what we can really do and what we can really become by the potential that is within us, which is our true self. And then to actualize or bring about that true self is what the humanistic psychologists called self-actualization. It's the true self once buried and hidden within us, finally being released and made manifest. Now, both Abraham Maslow and Carl Rogers, two very influential humanistic psychologists, had slightly different but similar ideas about how to bring about the true self in individuals. Um, you may remember from psychology class, for Maslow, self-actualization was at the top tier of his hierarchy of needs pyramid with physiological needs, you know, food, water, shelter, those things at the bottom of the pyramid, then safety and security needs at the next tier up, then social belonging and love needs at the next tier up, then self-esteem needs at the next tier up, take note of that, and then finally self-actualization at the top of the pyramid. And his whole idea was that if these most basic lower level needs toward the bottom of the pyramid are met, then a person can be positioned to then seek those more complex, higher level needs toward the top of the pyramid and eventually self-actualize. And so, once some of our most basic needs are met, the only step in the pyramid that stands between our true self and its actualization is self-esteem. Self-esteem. Which means that the true self, the very best of us we can be, will never emerge until we are able to think highly of ourselves as good, respectable, beautiful, lovable, and valuable people. Now, for Rogers, he believed that everyone's true self is buried somewhere underneath layers and layers of inner psychological defenses and negative opinions of oneself and feelings of self-doubt and low self-esteem, but is just waiting to be uncovered in everyone. And so as a therapist, he developed a particular psychotherapy called person-centered therapy, where he would give his clients what he called unconditional positive regard, which was basically an unyielding acceptance of them and affirmation of them and esteem of them, believing that this would help their true self begin to emerge. And so to use an analogy from gardening, Rogers wanted to be like an empathizing, encouraging, positive regard-giving soil, which might come around and provide the right conditions for the client, like a plant, to then begin to grow and blossom all on his own. And so, fundamentally, what we really need in order to actualize or bring about that true self inside of us is to be able to think highly of ourselves. We must accept ourselves, we must value ourselves, we must esteem ourselves. In the words of Louise Hay, we must learn how wonderful we really are. 
We must love ourselves unconditionally. We must have a deep appreciation for who we are. And we must realize that we are our saviors and that we are the power we've been seeking. The whole self-help, self-love movement has deep roots in humanistic psychology. But is humanistic psychology the answer? And is the true self, the very best of us and all that we can be, is it just lying dormant somewhere deep within us, just awaiting actualization through self-love and unconditional positive regard? Well, there's good news and there's bad news and there's great news. The good news is that thinking highly of ourselves and loving ourselves feels good. And feeling good can potentially lead to more positive behavior. The bad news is that though it feels good and can potentially lead to some more positive behavior, it's not enough to truly change us for the better or to draw out of us anything like the true self of humanistic psychology. The great news is that God has designed a way for us to be changed by his grace and to become the true selves he created us to be, which involves not thinking more highly of ourselves and not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less, less often than we do. And this is what we're gonna talk about this morning, how to look and think and get outside of ourselves so that we can become the true selves God created us to be, which are, in biblical terms, a people who love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. But before we get into the passage, let's pray. Just ask God to bless our time this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, I ask that you would give us not only understanding in our minds, but also a deep sense of our need for you and also a deep sense of the depth of the riches of your grace and love for us. Lord, may that inspire worship in our hearts this morning. Amen. So if you were here last week, we began looking at this phrase, your neighbor as yourself. And the idea that just as we are to love the Lord, we should love our neighbor also. Um, um, But before we really get into this again, I wanna refresh our memories. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And I wanna read the text that we talked about last week. So I'm gonna read verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So we're looking at this phrase, your neighbor as yourself. The idea that just as we are to love the Lord, we should love our neighbor as ourself. And Jesus illustrated this, this command with a parable, uh, this little story about a Samaritan who was moved to compassion for a person who was literally his mortal enemy, a Jew. We talked last week about the long history of warring and hostility between the Jews and Samaritans. And this parable is such an incredible little story, not only because the Samaritan demonstrated real, genuine love for neighbor, the kind of love that could even move a person to rescue his mortal enemy, but, but also because of the incredible lengths this Samaritan went to to show love to his neighbor in need. One commentator writes this, he says, if we encountered a scenario like this in real life, most of us would probably think the Samaritan's generosity seemed excessive. And I think that's a good point. I mean, have we ever dropped everything we were doing to attend to someone else in need? And did we single-handedly provide everything that person needed in that moment? Perhaps tending to a wound and providing clothing and shelter and staying with that person through a long night of pain? and providing all the resources that person needed? Have we ever done anything like that for anyone? Well, we'd be wrong to say no, because there are many times we've done all of those things for ourselves. The kind of attention we give to ourselves, the kind of care we take of ourselves, the kind of protection and security we provide to ourselves, the, the kind of time and energy and resources we use on ourselves. If we ever did that for another person, it would probably seem a little excessive, right? But does that then mean that the attention, care, protection and security, time and energy and resources that we constantly direct toward ourselves, is that all a little excessive? Now here's where things get interesting because 
the way we're told to love our neighbor here in Luke chapter 10 is as ourselves or as we love ourselves. Hmm. So this immediately raises a couple questions in my mind and we'll teach, we'll take each of them in turn. So question number one, how do we love ourselves? How do we love ourselves? Well, I think there's a couple general types of love we often have for ourselves. And the first is what I would call self-care. Self-care. And this is basically taking care of oneself. It's making sure that I have food and water today. It's making sure that I have a place to sleep tonight. It's making sure I'm safe and protected. It's making sure my relationships are healthy. It's making sure my finances are in order. It's making sure that I'm doing the things that I ought to be doing and that I'm not doing the things that I ought not to be doing. In each case, I'm seeking good for myself by taking care of myself, self-care. But a second kind of love we sometimes have for ourselves is a little different. And it's the kind of love that is the focus of the whole self-help, self-love program. And it's simply self-love. Self-love with a strong emphasis on the self and a strong emphasis on the love. It's accepting ourselves fully without judgment. It's affirming our choices without question. It's prioritizing ourselves above all others. It's constantly looking to ourselves. It's constantly thinking about ourselves. It's seeing ourselves as our only real savior and as the only power to change us for the better. In every case, it's exalting ourselves, honoring ourselves, glorifying ourselves, believing and trusting in ourselves. It's it's centering our entire existence around us. So you can see the difference between self-care and self-love. Which leads to question number two, should we love ourselves? Should we love ourselves? Well, let's start with the self-love kind of love. I think there are several reasons this is a bad idea, but I'm just gonna mention two, so. The first reason is that it puts us at the center of the universe. It puts us at the center of the universe, which is a problem because all throughout scripture, the story is that God is the only sovereign and there are no other gods before him. Exodus 23. God is over and above all things in wisdom and power and authority, Ephesians 4.18. God is the only one deserving of glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31. God created the universe and everything in it, including us. Acts 17.24. God predestined the times and the places that each one of us were born. Acts 17.26. It's in God that we live and move and have our being. Acts 17.28. God upholds and sustains the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's thoughts and God's ways above man's thoughts and man's ways. 
All men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field and the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God stands forever. First Peter 1.24. And we shouldn't be so confident about our life and plans because we don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is our life? We are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It is only if the Lord wills that we will live and accomplish our plans. James 4, 13 through 15. It is utter foolishness to put ourselves at the center of the universe or to even think for a second that we are not completely dependent upon God in every conceivable way. And another reason this self-love kind of love is a bad idea is because it blinds us to the reality of our own sinfulness. It blinds us to the reality of our own sinfulness, which is a problem because all throughout Scripture, the story is that we, by nature, are dead in our trespasses and sins, following the fallen course of this world, following Satan, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. We by nature are darkened in our understanding and are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to our hardness of heart, Ephesians chapter four, verse 18. We by nature do not follow God, are foolish, are disobedient, are led astray, and are slaves to various passions and pleasures, Titus 3, 3. We by nature are slaves to sin, Romans 6, 20. I'm reminded also of the words of Jeremiah who wrote in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Puritan theologian John Owen put it this way. He said, the enemy is not only upon us as in the world, but is also in us. And this enemy within us, this sin within our own flesh, wants to oppose God and his will and his word at every moment and wants to deafen our ears that we do not hear God's voice and wants to blind our eyes that we do not see God's beauty, and wants to harden our hearts so that we will give in to temptation and we won't listen to God, and wants to destroy our life and our family and our friendships, and wants to bring us to utter ruin and misery, and ultimately wants to drag us down with it to death. This is the end game of sin. And this is within us. In other words, we are our own worst enemies. Which makes the advice like follow your heart or believe in yourself or you must love yourself unconditionally all pretty bad advice. Self-love is a great danger. But what about our other type of love, self-care? 
Is it okay to take care of our health and take care of our friendships and take care of our finances? Is that okay? Well, I think the obvious answer is yes. Of course it's okay to take care of those things. And not only is it okay, but it's part of being a responsible steward of the life that God has given us. However, I think it's entirely possible to become way too obsessive over our own self-care such that we're thinking about ourselves way too much, which starts to look like just another form of self-love. But this, this raises another interesting question in my mind. And that is question number three. Why do we love ourselves? Why do we have this tendency within us to love ourselves in the sense of self-love? I wonder if deep down we know that we are imperfect and guilty of wrongdoing and loving ourselves is a way to forgive ourselves and repress that guilt? Or maybe we've made some life choices that we aren't entirely sure about and loving ourselves is the only way to get the affirmation we need? Or maybe for whatever reason we can't conceive of how we could possibly matter to this universe and loving ourselves is a way of telling ourselves that we do matter? Or maybe we fear that if we don't love ourselves, then there will be no one left to love us as much as we do. In any case, something seems to be missing from the self-lover's life. And what is highly suspect to me is a program that tells us that the only problem with us is to think that there's really a problem with us and that we must just accept ourselves and believe in ourselves and love ourselves because we are amazing individuals. So either our problems are just deceptions that arise from a failure to truly love ourselves or, or we are truly deceived. And there is a real problem and something really is missing. And if the problem is in us, can we have any good reason to believe that the solution will be found in us as well? Man, I'll just be honest. I've had more of a problem with Dylan McFadden than with any other person in this entire world. I am the problem And I don't know about you, but when I look deep inside of myself, I don't always like, let alone love, what I see. Because what I see is what is actually there. And what is actually there is not something so wonderful and beautiful inside of myself. It's something wretched and ugly. Like that horrible, disfigured creature that emerged from the portrait of Dorian Gray in Oscar Wilde's book, The Picture of Dorian Gray. The image of God in man, once beautiful, has been twisted and tainted and tarnished by sin. And this is why over and over again the Bible warns us against putting any confidence in the flesh and warns us against thinking of ourselves too highly 
and charges us to put the flesh to death with its passions and desires. And this is why the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty or trouble or peril, depending on your translation. There will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. And then Paul gives a whole list of sins that follow from a life that is centered in the love of self. So it seems we've come to a crossroads where one direction leads us to thinking more highly of ourselves, self-love, but the other direction seems to lead us toward thinking less of ourselves, self-hatred. We need a better way. And I think we find that better way when we reflect on what we really need. And what we really need more than anything is a real forgiveness that comes from outside of us in our sinfulness and tells us, you are forgiven. A real affirmation that comes from outside of us in our mistakes and tells us, I accept you fully. A real value that comes from outside of us in our brokenness that tells us you matter significantly. A real love that is greater than any love we could ever give ourselves that tells us I love you so much. I love you so much. We need a real sovereign, a real good, a real actualizing power that can change us more and more into what we were created to be, our truest self. But that means that we have to look and think and get outside of ourselves. So here's the next question, question number four. How can we get outside of ourselves? How can we get outside of ourselves? And there's basically three things. Number one, don't care so much about what others think of you. Number two, don't care so much about what you think of you. Number three, but care about what God thinks of you. So don't care so much about what others think of you, but don't care so much about what you think of you. Care about what God thinks of you. And we see these three things in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, where the Apostle Paul says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Point, point number one. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Point number two. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Point number three. Now, the humanistic psychologists definitely agree with this first point, that we shouldn't care so much about what others think of us, because that could actually lead to self-hatred, failure to live up to everyone else's expectations for us. But the humanistic psychologists definitely disagree with this second and third point, because they say that all that matters is what we think about ourselves. 
but this so easily leads to self-love. But Paul offers us a different way by saying, look, my identity, my self-worth, my self-regard, it doesn't come from anyone's opinion of me, and it doesn't even come from my own opinion of me. Now, that's pretty crazy for us to hear from Paul, because he's the guy who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. This is a guy who wrote scripture. And we look at Paul and we think, okay, if anyone in this world has a reason to be proud and to think he's a pretty good person and to love himself, it's this guy. And yet we find Paul so painfully aware of his failures and sinfulness, calling himself the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. So Paul is honest and recognizes his failures, but he refuses to let those judge him. But he's also well aware of his accomplishments and successes, but he refuses to let those judge him either. And why? Well, I think Paul's story is summed up well by the title of John Bunyan's book, not The Pilgrim's Progress, but actually his autobiography, titled, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. In short, Paul was found by the grace of God and the Lord Jesus who pronounced over his soul forgiveness, acceptance, value, and the love of God, and that changed everything for Paul changed everything for Paul, and Paul was happy to allow that judgment to reside over his soul rather than his own judgment or anyone else's. And Paul got the transformation that no humanistic psychologist could have ever dreamed was possible. As he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Far from any true self emerging from deep within Paul, Paul became a new creation in Christ. Once in Adam, now in Christ. Once a child of wrath, now a citizen of heaven. Once lost in darkness, now redeemed by light. Once guilty, now forgiven, once filthy, now clean, once dead, now alive. When we encounter the saving love of God, which is infinitely superior and more breathtakingly glorious than any love we could ever give ourselves, our hearts are lured away from self-love because they are left enthralled with him. And to be enthralled with the Lord is to care so much more about what he says about us than about what we could ever say about ourselves. And you know what's really interesting? It's actually a whole lot less interesting than what I just said, but this is also interesting. Abraham Maslow, toward the end of his life, actually began to grasp toward this concept. He found that 
almost nobody met his criteria for self-actualization. And he estimated that maybe only one in 100 or 200 people self-actualize. And he went on to critique his original theory. And he theorized that there exists a still higher need above self-actualization in the hierarchy of needs pyramid, which he called self-transcendence. Self-transcendence, which he described as a freedom from egocentricity. This is getting beyond ourselves. And in his book, Toward a Psychology of Being, he wrote this, without the transcendent getting beyond ourselves, we get sick, violent, and nihilistic, or else hopeless and apathetic. We need something bigger than we are to be awed by and to commit ourselves to. Maslow was not wrong. So, final question, question number five. How can we love our neighbors as ourselves? How can we love our neighbors as ourselves? And the answer is actually quite simple. And it's step number three in four steps I'm gonna give you, okay? Step number one, remind yourself of the gospel daily. Remind yourself of the gospel daily. Remind yourself of the love that laid down his life for his friends and allow the gospel to draw you away from self-love. Now, I know this goes against humanistic psychology because they say that you have to be certain of your self-worth and love yourself before you can be certain of others' worth and love them. And if you don't love people, it's because you don't love yourself enough. But I'd ask you to consider the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you think they went out of their way to avoid the helpless, dying man in the road because they simply didn't love themselves enough? Or because they loved themselves too much? The whole point of Jesus' parable was that the one who really loves is the selfless Samaritan who totally got outside of himself and went to such incredible, excessive lengths to show compassion to his mortal enemy even at the risk of his own life. Remind yourself of the gospel daily of the Savior who got outside of himself to show love to you. Not even at the risk of his life, but at the very cost of it. Step number two, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I know there's like four sermons right there. But simply put, love for God is the prerequisite to loving neighbors. And the more we love God, the more we will be moved to love the things that God loves And that includes our neighbors. Step number three, here it is. Seek to meet the needs of those around you. Seek to meet the needs of those around you. This command that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves is is certainly no less than an indictment, an accusation against those who love themselves fatally 
but it's also a charge to simply care for others in the way that we're in the habit of caring for ourselves. And so we should take advantage of the opportunities God gives us and puts right in front of us every day to do that, whether it's with our time or with our energy or with our resources or with whatever the need calls for. And step number four, and this goes back to last week's sermon, avoid the temptation to think of yourself as any hero. Avoid the temptation, which will always be there, to think of yourself as any hero. When we do love, we must deflect all glory and praise off of ourselves and onto the only hero, who is Jesus, so that people might see him through us, and so that people might feel his love through our love. And man, I'm so thankful for some of the people here at Cedar Home who, since the first day I walked through these doors, have shown me the love of Christ by how they love me, by how they love my wife, by how I see you guys love each other. I see Jesus through that. I see Jesus through some of you. That matters so much. And I think we love our neighbor best when we make every effort to help them see right through us to the great neighbor, the one who left his heavenly kingdom, entered into our world, and provided a way of rescue and salvation through himself. And if we've entrusted ourselves to the Lord, then we should desire that those we show love to will entrust themselves to him as well, because he's the one who loves them most, and he's the one that will love them best, amen? And so we mustn't think too highly of ourselves, and we mustn't think less of ourselves. We must think of ourselves less and of him more. When we do, we trust that his pronouncement of forgiveness, acceptance, value, and love over our souls is certain. And that frees us to be really generous, like the Good Samaritan, because we know that in Christ we have all things already. And we have more hope than we would ever need. And we have far more love than we could have ever dreamed would find us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. Oh Jesus, a love that laid down his life for his own friends. A love that today wraps us in his arms of grace and promises to never let us go. Lord God, I just ask that you would hold us now. Lord, and may your love find our neighbors through our love for them, which seeks no glory for ourselves but only your glory. Amen.